This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi, my name is Peter Sheba, and welcome to this week's episode of The Law School Show. I'm so privileged to have with me Beth Van Skak. Beth is the Leah Kaplan Visiting Professor in Human Rights at Stanford Law School and a faculty affiliate with Stanford Center for Human Rights and International Justice. Her practice areas include international criminal law, international human rights law, public international law, and international humanitarian law. Before beginning her current position at Stanford, Beth worked as the Deputy Ambassador at Large for War Crimes Issues in the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the U.S. State Department. Prior to that, she was a law professor at Santa Clara University in California, and she also worked in both private practice and as a litigation advisor at the Center for Justice and Accountability. It is such a privilege to have Beth with me today. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Beth. I have so many questions I could ask, but this podcast uh, is primarily focused on giving um, advice to young legal professionals and law students about specific career paths. So I'm hoping today to kind of ask you a few questions about your career in international law and then also about um, your new book, which has just come out, and some kind of specific questions about that. So um, my first question for you is, I was wondering if you could take us back to um, your time in law school and what got you interested in international law um, and the various fields that you've pursued now, having worked in so many areas. Yeah, great. Hi. Hi, everybody. Thanks for doing this, Peter. It's really fun to um, be involved with your program and definitely consider me a resource as you move forward in your careers. Um, so I chose a law school. I knew I wanted to do something in international human rights. I had spent the year prior to law school doing women's rights work in East Africa and was actually thinking about a public health career, but decided that the legal framework really interested me and I, I found it was limiting women's um, choices in a whole range of ways, employment, family, health, et cetera. And so thinking about legal reform, international human rights, you know, civil rights, et cetera, um, pushed me more toward a law direction. And so that's what I ultimately ended up doing for graduate work. And my law school fortunately had a really terrific international human rights clinic, which I was able to get involved in on day one. And that really was what I think moved me into the field. I used it um, to get litigation experience, to get advocacy experience. Some of the projects we worked on helped build my summer work. So I was able to do some field work overseas in areas where human rights are being actively contested and violated, which I think is really important. And that would be one, you know, big piece of advice I would give to students. Um, but the second is the sort of hands-on approach. And so if you don't have a human rights clinic, then looking for other ways, either through student-run projects or research with a faculty member who's doing international human rights work, maybe writing amicus briefs for cases that are coming through courts that, you know, there's a perspective that's that could be included that would be helpful for the judges to apply a human rights framework to the, the question presented, any of those ways I think are really important to kind of start to get your human rights skills built and then also your knowledge base. So I spent my summers um, 
I spent first summer in India doing a refugee project. Um, and refugee migration and asylum work is a really great way to do international human rights, but also live domestically because there's always needs around asylum cases um, in domestic courts where people are trying to, to have find safe haven in whatever country they're in. Um, and this was a project involving Sri Lankan refugees. And then I spent the second half of the summer in Cambodia where they were just starting to conceptualize the ECCC, the UN-backed um, International Tribunal for the Khmer Rouge. And so we designed and then taught a course on international criminal law to emerging lawyers. There never had been really much of a of legal training available in Cambodia for many years. Many lawyers were killed during the Khmer Rouge era, and they never really rebuilt the legal system or the legal education system. And so we designed and then implemented a summer course. And many of the individuals, interestingly, who went through that summer course ended up going to work at the tribunal, which was exactly the, the point. Um, and then my third summer, my second summer, I worked at a firm for part of it. I went back to Cambodia. And then my fourth summer, or the summer after um, law school, which was um, my sort of bar trip, I went to Eritrea and did some rule of law work there. So I tried to get out in the field as much as possible in law school. And then also just tried to take every single course. I was actually laughing with somebody the other day because I turns out I took public international law like three times because it was just taught by different people and they have different focuses. And so one was very public international law, transnational law oriented. That was Harold Coe. But then Michael Reisman was really interested in like border disputes and state to state dispute resolution. And so they were both teaching a course that was ostensibly public international law, but we ended up covering very different things. And then I also studied with Paul Kahn, who was very theoretical, but super interested in the International Court of Justice. And so my third piece of advice for law school would be, you know, take as much as you can, either in your law school, or if you can take classes outside of the law school, look for those really interesting, like international policy or international relations type courses. It sounds like you had like an incredibly international experience while still in law school, which is amazing. So when you left law school, you went and worked for the ICTY, is that right? That's right. That was my first job out of law school. We had hosted one of the lawyers who was an early hire of the ICTY. He had worked for the Commission of Experts that had done a factual analysis. The UN had deployed this um, commission to kind of start gathering evidence with an eye towards future accountability efforts. And then he ended up getting hired by the ICTY. And he came to Yale and gave a talk. And I remember sitting in the audience and just thinking to myself, that's what I want to do. And he was talking all about reviving the Nuremberg promise of international you know, jurisdiction, of individual criminal accountability, of you know, creating a, a true legal um, body of law around crimes against humanity, which is where, you know, human rights bleeds into international criminal law. And I just thought, and everything you know, he described was a blue sky question. They were having to reinvent this law because everything was 50 years old at that point. And it just was fascinating to me. And so when I graduated, I got a fellowship that enabled me to go and work at the prosecutor's office as a junior prosecutor. And I worked with um, Payam Akhavan, who was Canadian, actually, um, who was my boss at the tribunal, who was terrific, and worked on a number of the early cases like the Tadich Appeal, if you've read that one in your ICL class. Um, we worked on really interesting questions about how do you even charge genocide? It had never been charged at an international level. How do you prove mens rea? So those were some really interesting questions. And then much more kind of day-to-day -day issues. Like I remember being in a, a case in which um, there was an order that had been signed by the defendant ostensibly 
And the prosecutor was trying to get this into evidence. And the defendant was obviously trying to keep it out. And the prosecutor just on a whim said, well, we'll just get a handwriting analysis there. And then the judges were like, whoa, can we do that? Is there a rule on this in international law? What is the international criminal procedure? You know, how do we even decide whether this is valid um, and even available to us? And so that, of course, spawned like a whole round of of briefing to figure that out. But these sort of blue sky questions were so interesting to me. And so I used the first year of my fellowship to go to the ICTY and do that work. And then for the second year of the fellowship, I went back to the States and worked for the Center for Justice and Accountability, which was bringing domestic cases under our little alien tort statute, which is an idiosyncratic statute here in the United States that lets foreigners bring suits for violations of the laws of nations. And as it happened, we had a Bosnian case. And so the superior was being prosecuted before the ICTY in The Hague. And one of the subordinates had found their way to the United States and had been discovered by one of their victims. And so we were able to serve him with process and then ultimately had, I think, three plaintiffs in that civil suit. And so there was sort of some continuity between the work I'd been doing at the tribunal and then now litigating here in U.S. federal court. One thing that really strikes me as you talk about that experience at the ICTY, especially looking at it in terms of the book that you just uh, published, um, Imagining Justice for Syria, where there's this idea, I think, at the outset that this is an existential issue for international, uh, specifically international criminal law. Um, So I'm wondering, in that interim period from kind of the promise of the ICTY to now um, this 10-year-long conflict in Syria where we haven't seen, besides, you know, some trials in Germany and, and elsewhere, um, we haven't seen the implementation of international criminal law. What do you think has changed in that period? Is there still cause for optimism now? I know in your book, you go through these several options, but at the end of the day, the fact that it's uh, there is this existential dilemma, does that mean that the field has changed that much in that period? How do you, how do you view that? There's no question that the the mid to late 90s was a kind of a magical moment in international relations with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the sort of revival of the Security Council as a place where states could work collaboratively on global problems. Um, That opened up a window to be able to establish the ICTY and the ICTR, both of which have Security Council backing. And we've never gone back. We've never had another tribunal that has had that robust a degree of support from the international community, including funding and um, diplomatic support coming out of the Security Council, et cetera. We've had other tribunals um, that have had some Security Council assistance, but they've been much more consensual um, with the consent of the state in question, including the ECCC, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and you know, Syria would be a perfect example of a situation in which we should have a dedicated ad hoc tribunal. The crime base is so enormous that even if the ICC had jurisdiction, there's no way it could do more than a handful of cases. And so if we're going to have anything, I mean, I don't even want comprehensive justice, right? It's just some modicum of of justice. We, We would need to have a dedicated institution to really take that on. And that's where the political will has not been, has not been availing in part because Russia considers the Assad regime, their, their regime in the Middle East. And so they don't want to see them they don't want to see him um, that that regime fail, and so he's that they've essentially backed it and blocked any effort of any form of accountability or even 
any intervention by the international community of any of any coercive measures, including sanctions, et cetera. They've blocked that and made it very difficult for the international community to conceptualize pathways to justice on a collective basis. And so, as you noted, Peter, in the end, what's happened is we've had to look to domestic courts to do this and in a kind of a stopgap gap fashion, which is exciting on the one hand to see the revitalization of universal jurisdiction and see domestic courts really stepping up to the plate and doing what they're supposed to be doing. But it feels very episodic. It's very much based upon the existence of a perpetrator that they're able to get a certain jurisdiction over, um, victims who recognize the individual, who are willing to come forward, who feel safe enough to testify, prosecutors who have enough confidence in their understanding of international law and the statutory framework that they're operating under to sort of take these cases. They're risky, they're expensive. The witnesses are often all over the world. You have to deal with translation issues. The law is still somewhat inchoate when it comes to domestic law. We've got a lot of international law, but to what extent are judges interested in, and willing to apply that to directly or to at least consider it authoritative, you know, it, these are tough cases. And so we're, the, the domestic courts are having to, and domestic authorities are having to deal with these. We should have a dedicated ad hoc tribunal, but because of Russia's unwillingness to allow that to move forward, we haven't created that. Now, the book contains one chapter that offers a number of other theories for how we could do this, including going back to the Nuremberg idea of kind of individuals, particularly implicated states, pooling their jurisdiction, creating an international institution. But and that these ideas have been floating around diplomatic circles, but no, we haven't had the the, the, the adequate number of states really gel around this idea to be able to really make concrete progress. And so as it stands, we're left with domestic courts, plus all of these incredible documentation efforts that are happening at the very, very local level in Syria with international organizations that are stepping in to be documentation centers. And now with this new IIIM, this institution that was created by the, the General Assembly in order to be a kind of a clearinghouse for um, documentation that gets produced. Again, all with an eye toward sharing it with whatever prosecutorial authorities are out there willing and able to bring cases. Right. And that it brings me to another question um, kind of related to this path and, you know, a career in international law. Because one thing that uh, struck me in reading your book, you know, there it is this existential moment, but it's also in all of the different pathways that you talk about, there are these really creative lawyers, right? And creative minds coming up with different possibilities, you know, if there's a roadblock at the Security Council. So how much do you think that uh, creativity is an important um attribute for for lawyers to have who want to work in this field? Is that something that's kind of an understated um, quality to have? Absolutely. I think it's incredibly important. And that's part of what my goal was with this book, was to capture some of that creativity that's out there happening with advocates where they run into a roadblock, they find a way around the roadblock. And I, I used to have actually as a subtitle, Water Always Finds Its Way, and apparently that's not an expression that people know that well. <laughs> the publisher was kind of like, I don't know, it's not really translating well. And I was like, all right, forget it. They thought, oh, maybe somebody will think it's about, your book is about water law. And I'm like, it's not, my book is not about water law. But the idea being that like water will always flow downhill. And if you, if it confronts a rock, it'll go around it, it'll go over it, it'll maybe go under it and through the groundwater. But some way, justice like water will continue to move inexorably forward. And so 
I think having that creative energy and being able to sit down and say, okay, we're not going to be able to get this out of the Security Council, but what about the General Assembly? Can we build a coalition in the General Assembly? Yes, great. So then you go and you build that coalition in the General Assembly. And maybe the General Assembly is blocked, in which case you go to the Human Rights Council in Geneva and see what they can do. And just never taking no for an answer, basically, um, and always trying to think about how to use existing institutions in new ways to promote accountability. I think one of the most creative moves besides the IIIM that have come out of the Syria situation is the OPCW, which is the Office on the Prohibition on the Use of Chemical Weapons. They have taken on an accountability mandate that was new to them. Um, they had always been very much about tracking and, and setting standards and this and that. And now they're out there doing investigations and attributing responsibility to parties to the conflict in Syria. And so using the OPCW as another platform or venue with which to push and in which to push these ideas, I thought was also incredibly creative. And do you think uh, on the kind of flip side of that, do you think there are limits to creativity? I know um, one of the things that you talk about in the book as well is that the war in Syria has become one of the most well-documented crime scenes in terms of, you know, post-conflict justice, if we can say it's post-conflict yet. But one of the downsides of that and kind of a theme um, right now is this issue of re-traumatization and over-documentation. Um, and I know at Stanford, you've been involved with the medical school there on, you know, talking about issues of trauma with uh, victims of these international crimes. Do you think that um, with the space being less regulated now, um, and with more groups involved in documentation, there is a risk of this re-traumatization. And how do you foresee that being overcome? Yeah, it's a great question. I do think there is a risk of over-documentation. And there's maybe two obvious downsides. One is the one you've identified, which is the, the re-traumatization. You know, people going back to the same witnesses over and over again. But you can also have a deterioration of evidence. And so if you're creating, for example, five witness statements from the same witness taken at different times by different organizations, and somehow those all end up in the triple IM, which is supposed to be a clearinghouse, and then for disclosure purposes, they have to be given to the defense you know, that you can imagine the defense putting together a very robust cross-examination based upon minor discrepancies. And all of us, if we were asked to give a witness statement, even for the most searing of memories, we would have small discrepancies, right? That's, you know, how memory works. And so, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the core testimony is at all invalid, but, you know, it it creates an opportunity for a cross-examination, which then can also re-traumatize individuals because they're not believed um, and they don't they don't understand the process necessarily. And so I think the hope is that the IIIM to a certain degree will help to coordinate these different documentation efforts at the more local level to ensure that they're not re um, creating the wheel or stepping on each other and to try and kind of rationalize the process a little bit. Um, to what degree that's happening, you know, the IIIM was formed later, there was a lot happening early on. These nonprofits are in competition to a certain extent with each other, right, To don- for donors, for um, creating the definitive body of work, et cetera. They, they're going to be dependent upon, you know, they don't want to not do the work because that's what they're created to do. And so coming up with a way to divvy up the, the crime scene that is Syria is, is important. And I think NGOs have started to work together on that, even absent coordination from the IIIM, to just figure out, like, what 
different groups' unique institutional competencies are. Like we have people in Northeast Syria. Great, you handle Northeast Syria. We're going to look at detention centers. And there may be some overlap there, but not necessarily, um, you know, those bodies of evidence are not going to be entirely coextensive. So there is definitely a need to do more coordination and to be more careful, I think, about collecting from individuals who have experienced great trauma. I think we're in much better shape than we were in the 90s when, you know, you used to hear these stories of journalists running around saying, has anyone here been raped? You know, I mean, that was literally how they were doing their stories. And now we're much more sensitive to doing this and not to creating necessarily a written record, right? Use the the individual's testimony for lead and background purposes and to, you know, provide additional information, but don't necessarily take a signed formal affidavit because you want to wait until the person is ready to participate in a legal process in which to do that. And then it becomes one definitive signed um, signed testimonial. Um, and then also making sure that you as a human rights advocate are working with psychologists who are able to help the individual to ensure that their basic needs are being met and, you know, social workers as well, their basic needs are being met, that they're getting appropriate referrals if need be, that participating in a justice process is going to be helpful to their healing. It's going to advance their healing and not backtrack their healing. Now, as it turns out, you mentioned this human rights and trauma mental health program at Stanford. It's traumatizing. It's difficult to work through a legal process. It's difficult to get up on the stand and give your testimony. It's difficult to confront individuals whom you believe are responsible for what happened to you. That's part of the legal process. And victims rise to the challenge. It's a remarkable thing to see the depths of courage that they pull from and enable them to do this. But they need to be supported and they need to have support people with them and be have it be part of a process of healing rather than just take their testimony. You disappear for three years. You call them up. Can you testify next week? Drag them to court, have them testify and then never see them again. That's you know, those days are over. We need to have a much more long-term relationship with victims and be sure that we're supporting them in their vision of what justice is and giving them the referrals and the help that they need on this, on the medical and, and social work side. Yeah. And I think that is something, you know, especially with the Yazidi experience in Iraq and Syria, that um, over the last even five years, there's been a growing recognition of the importance of that and building up psychosocial supports as well in those communities has been seen as, you know, as more important now, uh, at least than it was in 2014, 2015, when this first um, all, you know, started happening and, and people were going in. Um, it does relate to another question I had related to vicarious trauma. Um, if in the last 20 years, we've seen a greater understanding of the importance of psychosocial support for victims, do you think that there's also been a growth in an understanding of how um, lawyers and other people who work in this field uh, can cope with vicarious trauma and the role that that plays in in a career in this area? Absolutely. We've gotten much better at it. Um, Maybe we're not quite where we need to be, but for sure, there's much more sensitization to the work. And it's not just lawyers. And I think this is This is where I think we have some gaps. You know, we lawyers often go through trainings. We understand secondary trauma. We have learned to identify the symptoms in our own selves and in our colleagues. We know what it means to take a break and to engage in more self-care. But we're often working through translators, right, who have to hear the story in the original vernacular and then have their brains work almost as, you know, automation translating it into the language that the lawyer can understand and then back and forth, back and forth. So they're hearing the story essentially twice. 
Um, judges, likewise, I think often think that they're immune from these things, and yet we need to, they need to be sensitive to the fact that if they're engaged in a case where these issues are being discussed, on, you know, and in in hearings, etc be aware of their own reaction. And often the reaction can be a rejection of the victim because the, the story is so painful. You literally don't want to hear it. And so, it, you know, thinking about how you can be fair as an adjudicator or a lawyer, um, even witnesses, et cetera, when you're hearing this um, from a victim, it's, it's very difficult. So recognizing that in yourself is important. Um, I've definitely had moments where I felt like I, I am too deep and I need to take a break. Even writing the book on Syria, I had to take a break for a moment because I was reading you know, all the Commission of Inquiry reports and victim testimony and press work and, and speaking with advocates and, and with some victims directly. And it was, it was overwhelming what people have experienced. And I, there were times when I knew I needed to take a break and focus on something else. And that was where I would like fix footnotes, you know, and like do, do those other things that like need to get done eventually, but it's not the, the heart of the project. So if you are going to go into this work, it's really important to get some training in recognizing the symptoms in yourself of secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, get some self-care um, techniques, physical exercise. I am a huge believer in, I think it gets you out of your head and into the world. And so having a movement practice, I think is great. I do a lot of yoga, but whether it's running or Taekwondo or whatever it happens to be, to get your head out of the work, I think is incredibly important, especially now when we're all locked down. Um, we're all working like crazy. We don't have the social outlets that we're used to having in the social support. And so the work can be overwhelming and nobody wants the lawyers who are going into this work to get burned out. That's the worst thing that can happen because then you lose an ally, you lose all that expertise. And so we need to find a way to build a cadre of people who can do this work and are 100% committed, but also are taking care of themselves in the process. And do you think that having a diverse practice is a part of that too? You know, you talk about this um, idea, if you're overwhelmed by reading really graphic testimony, that you can step away and, you know, do other work footnotes, but is it also um, something you recognize like having the ability to switch to a different type of work completely? Like once you're finished working on a case that obviously has a lot of traumatic elements to it, then being able to work on something completely different, like is there value in diversifying your practice for that reason as well? Yeah, I think especially if you're working at a law firm where you maybe have a pro bono case or you have, you know, a particular case that presents these issues, having other more generic cases that's just a business dispute and it's all about like, where do you allocate the money and who should take responsibility and all of that, I think can definitely be helpful. But even if you're a full-time human rights lawyer, there are other elements of the work that don't involve the direct um, client-based work, which is what I think is because you have that natural human empathy. So doing policy work, doing some writing, doing some academic work, working on legislative reform, for example, even advocacy and outreach. These are ways that get, get you away from some of the more difficult facts, but keep you in the movement and moving the ball forward, um, building a constituency, you know, helping to do community organizing within a diaspora population. These are all ways that you can still contribute that don't necessarily require you to be working with those most difficult of facts, which is not everybody is built for. And so if you are not built for that, it's better for everybody that you find another way to contribute rather than that you sort of force yourself to do something that you're not, 
you're not designed to. And that's ultimately going to mean you're not being as good a lawyer as you need to be. Yeah. And that it brings me into another question I wanted to ask and kind of one of the last questions I wanted to ask you. I think in the last year, we've seen so much discussion about systemic issues and systemic racism. And I think that um, one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot in international law is that it can be quite an elitist field. And there's a very narrow um, you know, group of jobs or group of internships that are out of reach for a lot of people who are um, you know, either economically disadvantaged or face other forms of systemic discrimination. So um, I'm wondering what advice you would give to those people who might um, find it difficult to break into some of these initial jobs in the field. Um, does it, is the advice the same that you should find other ways to contribute or what advice would you give to, to people in that situation? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's no, there's no question that it's very difficult coming right out of law school to get one of these sort of choice positions. They have, you know, hundreds of applications for every opening. People are coming in off of, you know, five, six years at a law firm where they've been litigating exclusively or they've been in the UN. And so, you know, right out of law school is a tricky time to try and get a position. If you have a fellowship available, that's one great route. And that's what worked for me. The Open Society Institute used to have a kind of international domestic crime-based fellowship called from the Center for Crimes, Community, and Culture. And they, I think, gave something like 20 or so of these two-year fellowships to do this kind of work. And that was what launched me. I would not have been able to do this work otherwise. Um, but, you know, those fellowships are not available to everyone. And that particular one is no longer available, unfortunately, so that you have to find other sources of income if you're going to support yourself in this work and not have a paid position. But there's lots of different routes. So, you know, going into an ordinary law practice, but then joining the International Human Rights Bar Association, if your city has one, join the ABA, join the International Bar Association. If you're in the United States, you've got the American Society of International Law, which actually is open to anybody, the European Society of International Law. These are your communities. And so join them and find ways to get involved through those communities. Um, I think think globally, act locally. So wherever you are, figure out if there's a human rights issue in your community and find a way to be helpful. We had a very interesting situation locally about um, homelessness and people living in um, vehicles, essentially, um, often it's kind of big, you know, trailer kind of vehicles. Um, and so there was a, a law that was on the ballot um, to try and make it harder for individuals to live out of their cars. And so, you know, that was something that was a human rights issue, but was very local. And so finding those issues where you can feel like you're making a difference, working on behalf of the most vulnerable, bringing a human rights mentality to a social problem can be just as fulfilling as doing something very fancy at the UN. And so, you know, there, there are needs everywhere is, is my point. The other thing to think about is to do some writing in a particular area. If you want to develop an expertise, you think of yourself as a children's rights person or a women's rights person or indigenous persons, write in that area. It's never been easier to do that now with all of the blogs out there. They're always looking for good content. And so, you know, write if, if there's a case development that you've been following or an issue that you care about that's maybe more local that hasn't made the national news, write a blog post about it and get one of the international law blogs to pick it up. Then maybe you build on that and you do a full law review and then you become a sort of expert in that area. So then five years hence, let's say, when you're applying to work at Human Rights Watch or 
um, you know, whatever your organization is, you can show demonstrated knowledge, commitment, um, lots of different skills developed, advocacy skills, lawyering skills, courtroom skills, et cetera. Um, so there's always a pathway to do this work, even if it's not your full-time job. And by keeping involved with the practice of human rights, that will enable you more easily to make a lateral move if that's what you decide you want to do after five years at a law firm or um, you know, five years maybe working in legal aid or, or working for the UN or what, you know, what, on an issue that's not exactly right in your sweet spot, but would help be a stepping stone to get you to your sweet spot. Well, that's great advice. Everything um, you've said has been very helpful, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate uh, appreciate everything that you've provided. So thank you so much um, for taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for doing this, and good luck, everyone, with the quarter. I'm sorry you feel like you're – I'm sure you many of you feel like your wings have been clipped by this pandemic, but we'll be back out in the field soon enough, I hope. And um, the, the field needs you. This, there's never been a time in recent history when we've had such a retrenchment when it comes to human rights. And so as far as I'm concerned, the more the merrier. So you know, find a way to, to plug yourself into this work and, and be a part of, the, part of the movement. Great. Well, thank you so much. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.